Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Jay Ferguson, Chris Murphy, Patrick Penland, and Andrew Scott, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob, this is Ken. Ken, what's good, man? We're coming up on a year of Sloancast. Just wanted to drop that in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you, listeners, for your patronage. And I'm really excited today. We we have somebody on the cast. I hope most of you should know this person. Um, but I'll let Rob handle the intros as he usually does. Yeah, I'm having. I've got a good feeling everybody's pretty familiar. Uh, this is a special episode, everybody. A special one, I think, for everybody. Uh, I, I honestly wasn't sure how to introduce our guest, so I wrote a poem, and here it goes. <clears throat> He's on TV doing the Popeye. It's a nod to Dennis Dennehy. You know the dude. It's that Sloan guy. This one's going out to Zombie McCulloch and Gord Krieger. When wielding his liquid sword, nothing is realer. The ties that are loose are the ones that he binds. Scariest thing about his October is the dang Halloween time. Whether ballads or rockers, few have gone farther. Musically untouchable, whether solo or with his crew. Believe him when he sings, he's someone with whom you can be true. And when it comes to fathers, this daddy will do. Uh, won't you please, everybody, uh, join me in welcoming to Sloancast. Sloancast superfan, Chris Murphy. What's going on, buddy? I, I was going to say, like... I think the three of us are the three biggest Sloan fans there are. It's finally, <laughs> maybe maybe Jay, maybe Jay edges me out. But thank you so much for 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 having me on, for the fact that this thing exists, uh, and for all of the you know as a band. I, you know I don't know how many bands that you know make less money than we do annually have a, a podcast dedicated to them. But anyway, for that I'm very grateful. And so thank you guys for doing this. And and I am secretly the biggest Sloancast fan. I didn't even follow Sloancast on Instagram for the first, you know, nine months or something. I was just like, <laughs> is, it, is it okay if I, you know, to admit that I'm listening to this? And of course I was the whole time. And, uh, and anyway, I love it. It's, it's really nice for me that, that this exists. So thank you for doing it. And thanks for having me on. Awesome. This is great, man. Yeah, you're making our day over here, and I'm sure that of the listener as well. So, uh, well, why don't we just, I mean, we've obviously had, uh, you know, we've had Patrick and Andrew uh, and obviously Gregory on just recently, Uh, and with those guys, you know, they kind of gave us some insight into their whole backstory, like, you know, uh, when they were a kid, family, moms and dads, that kind of thing. So if you don't mind maybe regaling us with kind of going back to square one a little bit. Well, I sure will, but, like, let me know if if it's a... when it becomes a little bit over the top, because of course I made a few notes. Uh, okay, well, a lot of people think that, that we're Halifax guys. I was born in Prince Edward Island. Born, I'm, I'm from PEI on both sides of my family. And my, I was born in 68. My sister was born in 71. And we immediately, upon, upon her birth, we moved to Virginia, where my dad goes to school, hmm. but gets his doctorate. Wow. And, um, and then we're there for like a year and a half. Then we moved to Scarborough, to like Finch and Warden, prestigious Finch and Warden, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we're there for a couple. I'm there from kindergarten, grade four, and so it's in kindergarten. That, okay, a couple things happen. One is that uh, when we're in Scarborough, which is Toronto, suburb of Toronto, my mother gets me. It's it's my sister they want, but it's it's me they get as, as a child model. So I end up as a child model. Mm-hmm. Some people know this. So I'm, you know, in the Simpsons catalog and the Eaton's catalog, you know, selling things like uh, Winnie the Pooh sleeping bag, uh, Daisy Air Rifles, Planet of the Apes Treehouse, Big Jim Ski Jump, Tiny Mighty Moe's, Walkie Talkies, and various outfits. Uh, Planet of the Apes Treehouse. treehouse. <laughs> yeah. I'll provide you with a visual. 
<laughs> Please do. Uh, and I was in a few TV commercials for uh, Harvest Crunch, uh, General Motors, and and most importantly, Schneider's Bacon. I was in this Schneider's Meats had this ad campaign where they made it they they made it like sepia and it looked like the early 1900s or whatever it's like in or sorry 1800s it's like in 1850 J.M. Schneider used only top quality meats or whatever and it shows him coming home to his family where I'm the boy and in the course of the commercial I quickly steal a piece of bacon off the table like a naughty boy kind of thing <laughs> and and the guy looks at me it's all voiceover but the guy in the background the guy says to me Norman because I had previously asked, previously asked, what's my name in this? <laughs> and, and the guy, the other actor who I think was just like, who is this kid? He's like, your name is Norman. Okay, action. And I take the bacon. He's like, Norman. Anyway, so that, 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 commercial, that commercial ran for a long time. So like, like I got so much, I got a lot of mileage out of that. Wow. Sorry, do you have a question for me? No, I was going to say, what, what, what was your motivation? <laughs> Exactly. Like, you know, are we, am I laughing? Is, am I, like, am I? Are you mad at me? Uh, anyway, so I'm in a couple of these goofball things. Yeah, but and, how, so how does your how does your mom land not just this one introductory gig, but a whole? Or what, were you doing your own management at that point? I, I guess I guess I ended up with an agent. I had an agent. I don't even remember her name, but she was the mother of the kid who played. Um. There used to be a thing. There's this group called the Hudson Brothers. Have you ever heard of that? Is it on your radar at all? This is total J music. <laughs> they had a TV show called the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Hudson Brothers Hour or something. And on the show, they had a boss, and the boss was like an 11 year old kid, and he was totally like horn rim glasses and a suit, and he would like you know they would have to bow to this child in a suit, and the mother of that kid was my agent. Uh, at New Faces Modeling or whatever it was. Again, as I say, I think it was my sister who was either, somebody said she should be in modeling, mm -hmm. and then we went to the thing, and my sister was terrified, and I was, you know, bouncing off the walls, and they were like, I guess we'll take this kid. He's not that cute. Anyway, the story of my life. But, uh, yeah, so I had an agent. I was in a few things. I was also, okay, well, I'll also say, in 77, 78, I was in, I was in a TV movie called <laughs> The Man Inside, featuring Stephanie Powers, who went on to Heart to Heart. It wasn't yet a thing. It was just a TV movie. But then I was also in a movie that actually did okay. It was just sort of like a, a Canadian tax credit write-off movie called The Silent Partner. Mm -hmm. But it had Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer in it. So I was just in a, in an, I was just an extra. But uh, I do have a picture of myself with the other kids and Elliot Gould. Maybe I'll send it to you. Please um, but uh, yeah, so I, oh, sorry. So I was, so it means that I was like ended up sort of like as an extra in the background of these scenes. So like a jackass in grade three or whatever, or four, I had to do a speech in front of my class. And I just remember the, the opening line was, I first started acting like as if I was like this actor. <laughs> and, you know, but really I was, I was, uh, you know, selling Winnie the Pooh sleeping bags. <laughs> So anyway, so the, the thing that basically starts my life, uh, the life that you guys know me for, is on October 29th, 1976, Kiss was on the Pauline Halloween special, hmm. and I saw it. I was already familiar with Kiss, where like kids would have brought in, Destroyer was the latest record. Uh, people would have brought, like a kid, I know a kid brought Destroyer for show and tell, mm -hmm. and, you know, 
Kiss at that time, so that was their, it was after Alive, so they were kind of already big. But they did uh, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and uh, Love Gun. Those three records in a row, they were just, they were drawings. They were essentially cartoons. So they were essentially marketed to kids. So I was in grade two and three when this was happening. And uh, so when I saw them, I was just started grade three. And so that was, so all in, in, in that week. So then the other thing that it sort of bought, bought me into is like there were three cool kids, three guys that were kind of the cool guys in my grade. Mm-hmm. And because of the nature of the four-man group, they basically needed somebody else to dress up as Kiss. So that's kind of how I bought my way in. All right. And so I was last pick of guys. So I was Ace, who is still my favorite, but is like the king of the fuck-ups. But anyway, um, you know, we dressed up as Kiss. And, you know, we went to school on Halloween during the day and signing autographs and, all, you know, just pretending we were a band. We went out that night for Halloween I think, it, I think it was the first night I had ever been out for Halloween without my parents. And those three guys were like, because <laughs> we were without our parents, they're like walking down the street like, fuck, shit. And I, I, and I was tailing behind. Like I just, I didn't want to be associated with these troublemakers. And I was, plus I was sure my parents were following us. So what else? So we would dress up as Kiss and, and, and air band, like play to the records. And like my friend had like a little, you know, little drum set you can get through the catalog. Mm. I don't know if I got a deal because I was associated with the catalog, but uh, I'm just joking. But, uh, you know, with like paper skins and stuff. So you put baby powder on the skins and so like it would be like smoke was rising off the thing. So uh, like I was into spectacle. I was into rock music and Kiss were my favorite. And they were really my favorite without challenge. Mm. Grade three, grade four, grade five. Like I didn't listen to anything else. Like that's all I did was listen to Kiss. But my, my parents were also into music. My, my mom was into Joni Mitchell. When we moved to Virginia, my mother was completely homesick and just listened to Blue, uh, this, this heartbreaking music. So right. it's not really music that one necessarily associates with me, but, but uh, because of you know, my mother loving it, um, you know, I love that record so much. And, and she had Court and Spark was the other one that I really know well that came out in whatever it is, 76 or something like that. Hmm. And my dad liked the Eagles and... Uh, Willie Nelson, and he had some older records like Elvis and stuff, but he, he didn't play that kind of stuff. I have, also have a story where, like in 1981 or whatever, when the Eagles' Long Run came out, I saved all my money and I bought my dad a copy of the Long Run, but it was already, <laughs> it was kind of a stylistic shift where it was kind of like this hard rock record. Like, hmm. I don't know if you remember the Long Run. It's like, there's gonna be a hike. And yeah. it, it just wasn't. <laughs> So I was always like basically guilt tripping guys like, oh, I don't see you playing the long run very much. Anyway, <laughs> an asshole early. Yeah. Wait until um, they get to hell freezes over. <laughs> I saw that tour <laughs> at the exhibition, the CNE, I think. I left halfway All right. through. All right. Yeah, well, that's a uh, soundtrack of my 1994 <laughs> for sure. Is So you, you mentioned you mentioned picking up a, a, a drumstick for the... It, it, were the drums your first instrument? Were you getting exposure to instruments before this? No. So I was, because I was ace, I was, I guess, the theoretical guitar player. Everybody mm. was theoretical, of course, mm. in grade three. I did have a friend who could play guitar and who had Beatles records, like these kind of unrecognizable Beatles records, like Beatles 65 and like these, sure. like the sort of you know North American versions of these sure. things. I, I always found it completely confusing. I was like, how do you keep, how many records these guys have? It seemed like the Beatles had about 150 records, but right. um, <laughs> as you know, they were just different uh, up until sure. uh, uh, Sergeant Pepper yeah. or whatever. Yeah. 
um, uh, what's my point? Oh, but I actually took a guitar lesson in grade three or something where, um, you know, it was essentially ta-ta. I never made it to the guitar. It was like ta-ta, ti-ti-ta and stuff like that. And I was essentially, I don't know if I actually showed up in full makeup, but I was essentially like, <laughs> I'm already in full makeup. Give me the fucking guitar. But so I, so I never learned. I didn't pick up guitar again until about grade eight. So Kiss is still my favorite. Um, I'm uh, first started acting, so I'm I'm uh, you know I'm doing all right. I'm in grade four. So in, at, at the end of grade four, uh, my dad gets a job in Halifax, and we moved to Halifax. So you know I grew up. I, I mean I was born in the Maritimes, being in PEI, but so I hadn't been there until then. So I was mortified because I was I felt like I was a city kid. I had a long giant bowl cut kind of thing, like a big helmet of hair. And I pictured when I when we went to visit my grandparents at PEI, all the kids had what I would call a beaner, which basically meant like a brush cut. And mm. I just pictured everybody out there looking like like street urchins, like Dickensian street urchins. I was like, I'm not moving out there. This sucks. So I was really even when I moved to Halifax, like for a couple of years, I, I felt like okay, you're my best friend here, but my real friends are in Scarborough. But meanwhile, everybody I had known in Scarborough had forgotten about me the day I left. <laughs> but, uh, but when I moved to Halifax, because even though I was that prestigious Finch and Warden, yeah. you know, I had barely seen the city. Although I went downtown sometimes, of course, to do these like modeling gigs or auditions or whatever I did. I also, I should say, when I was doing that, that child actor, child model actually stuff, I did an audition for a couple of things. I don't know if you guys would know these, but, but do you know the, like, ever been to see Billy, no Captain Heinleiner? Like, I auditioned for that. Like, that could have mm-hmm. been me, okay. which would, which would have, of wow. course, ruined my life. And I also, there was another ad campaign for Libby's Beans, where the kid eats a whole plate of beans for the voiceover, and at the end says, more beans, please? More mm-hmm. beans, please? Anyway, it was a huge ad campaign in the 70s. You guys were babies, or, or not even born. But... Um, I also auditioned for that, but announced as I went in, I was like, I hate beans. <laughs> so, did not get it. So, anyway, so I, I moved to Halifax. I'm just like, I'm, so they, th- as far as they, they know, I'm from Toronto, but of course I'm not really, I'm just like a street hockey playing nerd from the suburbs. But, but I had this weird anomaly year. So we moved to a townhouse. We only ended up staying there for a year. So I went to Fairview mm. Heights, kind of like the tough, mm. tough elementary school. Sure. And, but I kind of bypassed all the jocks, like all the girls loved me. I was like, had a turtleneck and big thing of blonde hair. I was from the city. Like they just thought that I was like this cosmopolitan kid and, you know, dealing with all these hicks and, and they were, and they were advanced. Like they were, like I was going to parties with girls and dancing and stuff. And then grade five, like my mm. kids are in grade six and, and nine, like as far they never talked to a girl. Anyway, I was like kissing girls in grade five and just like you know seemed like this kid from toronto anyway then the news breaks that oh, we bought a house down the street you're going to be going to clayton park junior high right. like, oh. so so i wasn't from toronto anymore i was from fairview so i didn't talk to another girl till about grade 10 so mm-hmm. i had this like one year of like kissing girls in the basement and then back to D D for like <laughs> three or four more years uh, so I, did I interrupt you, Rob? Did you want to say something? I'm just basically telling a boring story. No, I was just going to chime in with, I'm kind of curious. 
Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, like, I saved up for a year to buy, like, a G.I. Joe. Uh, and I was just curious, like, I mean, so doing these I. modeling gigs and acting and stuff, were you making any kind of scratch where it was just like, hey, I'm going to, like, give myself a little something? Right. I also saved for a long time to buy a 12-inch G.I. Joe. I'm sure yours were the 6-inch G.I. Joes, like Cobra and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mine were, like, like uh, with the fuzzy yeah. hair and the beards and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I saved up and bought the... the the GI Joe uh, helicopter, I think. Anyway, but but no, like the joke. The joke when I got older about my the money I made from modeling was like, anytime you want to use the washer and dryer, just go ahead. <laughs> Basically, we bought ourselves a washer and dryer. Okay. Um, yeah, the money did not go to me. Right. So I just want to say, so at, at, at this juncture of my boring story, I've moved to Halifax, and I'm. I'm not really listening to Kiss as much. Like I'm going to parties where they're playing, you know, uh, "Bad Out of Hell" by Meatloaf, mm. um, "Parallel Lines" by Blondie, um, and I, I got really into Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, like that that year. And the, but like uh, disco music, like I just remember, um, like pop music by M. Do you know that song? Talk about yeah, pop yeah. music. Talk about. And Born to be Alive and right. Ring My Bell and these kinds of things. But I also really, sorry, on the power pop thing, and we power pop, a, a, a word often associated with Sloan. So this is when My Sharona came out. But that, yeah. that was a huge one for me. I loved My Sharona so much. Sure. And KTEL Records. Like, I was into all that kind of KTEL stuff. Right. So, you know, whatever. I sort of, my favorite band, Being Kiss, was kind of ended around, you know, 79, 80. I did buy Dynasty their 1979 record um, where they were finally depicted as a, it was a photo instead of a, a cartoon. So I was all excited. There was a poster came with it where they were not a cartoon. I was like, Hey, there right. they are. <laughs> um, and so if, uh, we do, if we do do a vignette sort of flashback of Chris's youth, it's going to be pop music by M playing in the background, right? Sure. I mean, I, I bought, I bought pop music by M that 45 with my own money, I remember. I think it was probably the first non-Kiss record I bought. The first, first, just a um, uh, sidebar, my, uh, the first um, 45 I ever owned, I didn't buy, my babysitter bought for me, was Play That Funky Music uh, right. by, uh, by uh, Wild Cherry. Wild Cherry, yeah. Uh, and the B-side was, the lady, want, the lady Wants Your Money. Don't all say it at once. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll I'll try and speed it up here. Anyway, um, yeah, I do I do want to quickly go back if you don't mind. Like, I'm probably the only person I know who likes the U2 album Pop, and on that tour, uh, and and there are other stuff since then. I'm kind of whatever about, but uh, on that folk. tour, they they came out to the song uh, Pop Music by M, and so that's where I was kind of first really introduced to it. Um, but yeah, I love that song. I don't know why I'm throwing that out there, but anyway. Well, I was. <laughs> it segues nicely into although I have to skip a few years. I did love U2 was like a huge band for me. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'm like, I, I can't segue as easily as I can't because I, I haven't talked about grade six or seven. <laughs> well, let's go back in the time machine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. I just want to say a couple of things. I was just, I wrote a bunch of baloney down when I knew I was doing, it. um, okay. So yeah, John Lennon gets shot in 1980. That was kind of a big deal. Jay, who I didn't know yet. He basically, that's a line in the sand for him. He basically mm. was like collecting hockey cards up until that day. And then it okay. was just like, everything out the window it was like all Beatles from then on. Right. Um, 
I, I had a friend named Pat Oancia who at the grade seven Christmas party played um, Bodies by the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard anything like that. And it just blew my head off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went on a family trip with my family in 1981 where they played, where we, um, my cousins introduced me to the White Album. So we went home with a tape of that across the country. So that kind of like blew my mind. Uh, I saw on that summer, I saw the video for Whip It by, by right. Devo also blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. But even though I had seen those kind of interesting things, not that Rush is not interesting, but like it was Rush that I really got into in like grade seven and eight kind of thing. Mm. Um, I should also... Moving, moving pictures or... Yeah, I think the first one I got was Exit Stage Left, which was the live record that came out directly after that. Okay. But then I went back and got the, the two previous. I got... I don't, I don't know if I owned them, but like I got in, like I know all the rush up until then. So like, like I got into it at exit stage left, went back and binged on all the early stuff, Hmm. but kind of by the time the next record signals came out, I did like signals, but like that was kind of the end for me. So like I just did it. So like, like a pressure cooker of rush for about 18 months. Kind of. Okay. I should also say that I was really into comedy as well. Like I was really into SCTV at this time. And, you know, records by, like, Steve Martin and George Carlin and this kind of, these kind of old guys. But, like, comedy was a big thing for me. Hmm. And so I'm into Rush. And so I'm eventually into punk, like, a couple of years later. So my, my gateway was essentially. So Rush, Rush themselves became kind of more new wave hmm. uh, in the scheme of things. And they were really into the police. Right. And then so I was really into the police at that point. I uh, got Zanetta Mandetta and, mm. and Queen's Greatest Hits in 1981. Got those cassettes for Christmas. Okay. Um, I got into. I had a friend who was kind of more uh, into new wave and stuff like this. So he was into Duran Duran, like Kajagoogoo and Ooh, yeah. Japan and these kinds of things. Like, I didn't really go. I, like, I was big into Duran Duran. I loved the first record, and I mean, I you know the first I would have heard would have been would have been Rio. But uh, but I went back and really loved the, the the first record, and then I thought they got quite whack like immediately after that. That Seven and the Rag and Tiger, <laughs> I thought it was pretty whack. But I was also so like you know Rush did this. They were making videos and trying to look new wave, and they were just they looked like idiots. So it was really like U two U two War changed my life again too. Like I loved U two mm. so much. Like I mm. I thought I still think U two War is like one of my For favorite sure. records ever. Um, I had a good friend whose older sisters uh, went to clubs and stuff, and they saw they went to see Doug and the Slugs, and um, you know I actually heard Doug and the Slugs records, like they had them, like I kind of liked the Doug and the Slugs records, and Trooper and stuff like that. I loved Trooper, mm. but they also they also were they knew about Platinum Blonde when they were really really starting right. out when they were kind of a police cover band, right? And so I I kind of I heard the first Platinum Blonde EP. Platinum Blonde opened for Billy Idol in Halifax in Makes about ni- 1984. Yeah. And I loved I loved the first, well, I don't know if it's the first. I, I loved that Billy Idol record. And it was Rebel Yell by the time he came to Halifax, I think. But anyway, mm-hmm. like, I was big into that. So all this kind of, like, kind of punk, like, essentially, so it was like the early 80s. So it was like all these punks that had been, you know, in, you know, actual punks in the 70s. And now they were kind of pop stars, you know. Right. And Platinum Blonde were immediately very whack as well. <laughs> um, 
Just want to use an opportunity to give a shout out to Nick Beggs, the bassist from Kajagugu, who's probably behind Chris Murphy, my second favorite bassist. Now, Nick, Nick Beggs' name I know because I remember like my buddy Jean-Marc Gourette, who kind of <laughs> turned me on to like, he was in, but he was into like, he was into Japan, but he was also into Aussie, hmm. like whatever. It was just the time. Like he just, he was just a kid that liked music, but like he loved Nick Beggs. Like he was like, this guy's the best bass player. Even though uh, as if, you know, you guys are music guys, like John Taylor is no slouch. Like that guy's awesome. Right. For sure. Um, so one of the, one of the first concerts I went to was this band called the drivers and they had a song called tears on your anorak. Did you ever hear that song? It was pretty yeah, sure. underground. So like the guy, so they, they were from England and they had a record that got released in Canada and it was kind of a mine, minor hit in Canada. It's a similar story to that band, the monks that had those, had the song drugs in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Anyway, these guys had this, their song was called tears on your anorak. They played in Halifax and I went to see them. So I was kind of flirting with new wave. Like I have told the story before and maybe it's insensitive to say, but like my joke is that like I, Telling my, telling my friends that I preferred you two to Rush was akin to telling them I was gay. It was like, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> like, like these guys. Like, are you? Edge couldn't do what Alex Lifeson does. Are you kidding? Like, he can shred circles around because, like, because when you're a kid, like it's just like music is just about excellence or whatever. It's like, <laughs> I don't know what charm is. I want excellence. It's sports. <laughs> it's the anyway, Come on. anyway, I nothing against. Gay people, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Um, that sounds so stupid. Anyway, <laughs> but um, so sorry, but so I'm at this driver's concert with some friends. I forget if it's grade nine or ten, and I don't. My, my mother around the same time took me to see the Nylons, another nice. <laughs> another formative. Not that branch of my musical interest didn't really go anywhere, but um, but uh, anyway, so I'm where I wore like a like a like a kind of military <laughs> garb. Like I had a United Nations patch and a crochet tie, but I went to see the drivers. Oh yeah, the drivers, they had this minor hit. And then I think when they were in Canada, cause they were from England, their, their label fell apart or their tour support fell apart. Mm-hmm. So they're like stranded in Halifax. Okay. And, and it was that they met a guy named Kevin McMichael. And so the singer of the drivers was this guy, Nick Van Eed, and he and Kevin McMichael formed this group called the cutting crew. Mm-hmm. And they had that song called I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. Right, yeah. And so, like, that guy's, like, a guy from Dartmouth, like Kevin McMichael, who, okay. has, since, who has since died. But anyway, I, I saw this band, The Drivers, like, that was kind of one, like, they were kind of alternative or they were kind of, like, indie. And so, like, that was kind of formative for me. Before, I had, I had sort of turned on to, like, the fact that there was there were local bands in town playing downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I soon turned on to that. I have a friend named Sharon McDonald who had gone to Fairview Heights. So I met her in grade five and mm-hmm. then I, then I lost touch with her again until I went to high school when, when the sort of feeder schools met again in high right. school. And then by, she was full on punk by then, but she turned me on to all kinds of punk stuff, but like, uh, stuff that I didn't, that I don't really hold as dear. Like she was really into like the exploited mm-hmm. and GBH and all these mm-hmm. kind of like leather and studs, uh, British early eighties, um, Whatever, it just sure. just wasn't my thing. I mean, where, I, I was kind of interested in it, but sorry, go ahead. Where, where are we at in the chronology now? Are we talking? Is this eighty three? This is a grade ten. Yes, we get grade eighty three. All right. So I'm still 
so I'm still a lightweight dum dum, like um, you know, thinking that I like the Sex Pistols. Like I dressed up as Billy Idol and went to a Billy Idol con- lookalike contest, though I didn't enter the contest. <laughs> I was too mortified, but I did go dressed as Billy Idol. And but I was kind of new. It like I had there was like at Le Chateau or some of those stores like they had like a a shirt that didn't button up here. It kind of buttoned up asymmetrically up the side, like a Civil War style thing. <laughs> oh, and my man, hair was yeah. kind of spiked. But so I was like, I was into like kind of like you know in the way that like hair metal is like like lightweight metal. Like I was into like essentially hair punk, like Billy Idol and Platinum Blonde and this kind of thing. So could you say that 84, you were knocking at Le Chateau's door, perhaps? I was knocking at Le Chateau's door, that's right. <laughs> uh, not exactly. Like, I don't, ah, maybe I did, I must have got that there. I don't know who else sold Civil War attire. <laughs> but, but uh, so, yeah, when I was at the Billy Idol Lookalike Contest, um, I don't know if it was that day, but I was down there, there was Sam the Record Man at, at Bears Road, where mm-hmm. I think Jay may have sometimes worked, but I didn't know Jay yet. They were playing the Ramones. I remember just standing in the store and listening to Ramones and thinking, this is super cool. Like, they were never really my band, but, like, I I loved it. Uh, And uh, the other thing that happened in Halifax, there was really no radio in Halifax. And within the span of a few months, like in November 83 and into, um, or whatever, around uh, between 84 and 85, the Q104 came on. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was just like a rock radio, yeah. Um, but had it was goofy at, at first, and like kind of like almost at, like a lot of comedy and stupid stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And CKDU also went kind of FM sure. in 80, 85. So like that's kind of that was kind of perfect for me, like eighty four eighty five to get like this, like to be able to tune into CKDU and hear about underground music and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I also so around grade ten maybe I went downtown with some friends and we went to, we were just basically looking for the scene that we had sort of heard about. Like at mm-hmm. one point we went, we saw a band practicing and we asked them if we could come in and watch them. They said we couldn't. Then we went back there the next week and there was like a show going on there. And I think it was an early, I think that place was called the club Flamingo. Right. The Flamingo had a couple of different, um, incarnations. So this was on Argyle street. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so so around grade 10 or whatever, I saw a group called Club Med that were essentially just like a frat house, 60s dance band, kind of like the kind of band that would play at like Animal House or whatever. Hmm. And there's another band called The Realists that were more kind of like the jam or like new wave kind of thing. They had originals and that kind of thing. So I went there and, and um, Ken, do you know who Roland Glynn is? Oh, no. I No. Doesn't ring a bell. It's Halifax stuff. Like he was just like a Halifax mainstay. Had tons of tapes at CKDU. Like literally, like his his own section at CKDU. But he was there. He had like wide legs on, no shirt, shaved head, just dancing crazy at this show. And I I went up to him and I was like, "How old are you?" Like just like a what an asshole. Like how old are you? And he's like, "I'm 28." I was just like, "What are you doing here?" Like I was, (laughs) you know, I was 15 or whatever. But just, I'm so embarrassed that I said that now because he was, whatever, he was, he was great. Um, so yeah, Sharon McDonald sort of turned me on to the fact that there were bands downtown and stuff like that. So I eventually got into uh, seeing bands downtown. I was also part of like a radio club at school where like they, we could broadcast music to the school, like at, in, to the cafeteria or whatever, like at lunchtime. So mm-hmm. like. I was meeting all the kind of like weirdos and stuff at the school. 
and um, and, all, and the, I was also into like the Violent Femmes, uh, you know, Sex Pistols, The Jam, that kind of stuff. But then, but then I, I started um, really getting into hardcore and stuff like that. Hmm. So Sharon turned me on to you know some of these hardcore bands, and I met this other guy named. Oh, I should also say. I was friends with Jennifer Pierce, who went on to be in the band Jail. Hmm. She, I, I dated her in grade 12. She, she was my prom date. And she was best friends with Fiona Hyatt, who later married Andrew Scott. Okay. So they were my high school friends. And, uh, so, and the, other, the other guys who went to my high school were these kids, in this, or two of the guys in the group called the Jellyfish Babies. Right. So they were a year behind me. And in 1985, I went to see them play. I, I saw them for the first time. I think they had just started, and I saw them a bunch of times in '85, '86, and they just they blew me away. They were kind nice. of folk folk punk. They were kind of hardcore at first, but they kind of dropped the hardcore kind of soon after. Sure. But Scott Kendall and Peter Arsenal from my school, Dave Schellenberg, um, like maybe a year or two older, and a and a girl who lived downtown, Colleen Britton, and they were just fantastic. And they were just my heroes. They were kind of like Soul Asylum, I guess, kind of like mm. stylistically. Um, sort of a late Husker Du. Yeah, and, and into Husker Du. And they um, they made a record. They had tapes that I bought and owned and loved in 1985. And then they actually made a record in 1986. Mm. And, you know, they were in grade 12. And, it, you know, I think I was probably in university by the time the record came out. But I was just like beyond jealous I wanted to be in that band. I thought that, you know, I could play drums okay, and I wasn't as good as Colleen, but I was just like, get rid of Colleen. Like, I'll be in this band. Like, that was kind of my my fantasy, is that I was going to join the Jellyfish Babies. Uh, but so so they're making a record and all this stuff. So meanwhile, my cut to me in Clayton Park. So I am friends with the kid across the street who's literally just like banging pots and pans attached to a Black & Decker workhorse. And he and the paper boy and I got together and we started making our own kind of alternative music. Right. Uh, it wasn't named by, by me, but it was Potato Head Ed and the Terminal Farmers. <laughs> Mike Crosby, the son of Howard Crosby, who was the, uh, I don't know, he was the whatever, I forget if he was federal. Or, he was like the MP of, of, of our neighborhood kind of thing. Oh, he was like okay. a politician. Yeah. And Richard Biggs, the the just like the goofiest. It was basically like having Napoleon Dynamite as, essentially as the singer, and I was the guitar player. So we would have been we did, we did like Chinese Takeaway by the Addicts and like this mm-hmm. stuff. Like there were a couple of like punk compilations, like Burning Ambitions and like the Times Square soundtrack. It was a movie called Times Square. Like these were records that were at the radio club, so I had access to some of these kind of like mm. you know British punk and stuff. So. Or we also did "You Spin Me Round" like a record by Dead or Arri- Dead, right. Dead on Arrival, or, yeah. or Dead or Alive. Actually, they were called D O N. Anyway, so Jellyfish Babies, younger than me, making a record, amazing. I'm pots and pans. In, in the <laughs> anyway, I met a guy named Mark Ducharme, who's a big part of my story, and and uh, and he was dating a girl named Mary McDonald, whose older brother Ewan McDonald had been in this. In the punk scene, he, he was in a band in the early 80s downtown I never saw, but called Urban Attack. Mm-hmm. Their their graffiti was still around, like you could find it. I think they probably just played covers and stuff. And he ended up in a band called Fair Warning mm-hmm. in Montreal. And they were 
pretty terrible, like generic hardcore. But like, like I, I, they, they were cool. Like Ewan was so cool. And through Mary, like through Ewan to Mary to Mark, like I, I borrowed tons of his albums and it reads like still to this day, like all of my, the, the records are dearest to my heart. So it's like minor threat out of step rock for light by the bad brain, smile goes to college by the descendants uh, the crew by seven seconds back from Samoa by angry Simones. Mm. Uh, how can hell be any worse by bad religion? Um, uh, what was it called? Everything went black by black flag and the first MDC record. Like I just hardcore music. So just a tiny primer, just like punk music, you know, from the England from sex pistols and the clash. I love the Sex Pistols, The Clash. I do love The Clash, but I always kind of, whenever I'm fighting with people who love The Clash, I always pretend, I always position myself as someone who doesn't like The Clash just <laughs> to, to fight, basically. And I always say, because I do, there's part of this is true. When I heard all these hardcore records, like hearing, hearing London Calling, which is so great, of course, mm-hmm. but it just sounded like the Saturday Night Live band to me. It was just like, <laughs> this is not hard. Like, this is so saxophones and soft, right? But of course, it's great. Just for the record, I realize they're get, they're great. But I always also thought that the Clash, they just always seem to be totally ready to have their picture taken. Like this, these male models, right? And they were beautiful, and I do love them for it. Like I love presentation and all that kind of stuff. You know, to me, as a picture of the Sex Pistols, they're always like bucking their teeth out and stuff like this. But the Clash are just like ready to pose but anyway so i got heavily into hardcore and uh and nothing against fair warning and and i thought that fair warning were were great i had the record i love ewan and ewan later changed his name to clank and he and he went blind Mm -hmm. and i see this guy he he lives in montreal now and so i'll hear like clank is here he wants to see you and he'll come and he'll like feel my face and everything like to sort of see me and everything it's like i i love seeing him so it's great so I have this ongoing battle with Jay about who made it to the stage first. Right. Because right. his band technically right. played a couple of weeks before my I'm, first, the my first, what I count is my first show, April 26th, 1986. Do we have right. new insights into this or is this... Uh, well, are we play- counting coffee houses? Right. Well, I played a coffee house with Tony Deaf and the Piano Tuners. That's right. That uh, The stupidest name of all time. Where, you know, we played, you know, we played Angry Simone songs like we were not like a fully formed act. It was me and Mark Ducharme who ended up in my band Whiteout. But we played a coffee house in 1985. So I'm like, if you're counting covers, uh, then I win. But uh, if you're counting all originals, actually, we didn't. Anyway, so Mark Ducharme and I and a guy named Steve McCullough, who you you uh, mentioned earlier. So, so he's he's been my buddy since 1985, 86. Uh, and the other guy was Mike Crosby, who had, uh, who had played across the street with the Pots and Pans. He's upgraded to a drum set. So the four of us are white out. And we play, we open for the Jellyfish Babies, April 26, 1986. I feel like I'm part of the scene. I'm in hmm. the scene. We played a couple shows as white out. And, and basically within a year, the Jellyfish Babies have left town. Like they're, they've moved to Toronto. Right. They moved to Toronto, and then I think they spent some time in New York. Sure. So... So now there's there's kind of a, a vacancy for like greatest band. So I'm not yet there. So I play. So Whiteout plays a couple shows. Then I ended up playing. Steve McCullough and I, I meet another guy named Chris Murphy. This is a true story. 
I'm introduced to him, of course, because we're both named Chris Murphy. Hmm. And he's punk rocker, like he's the perfect guy for me to meet. He lives downtown, like is, re, like is a real lifer, like lives on his own, uh, in the closet of his brother's place, because they're both kind of like taking care of themselves. They kind of had a crappy upbringing and... Uh, or just like whatever, not as safe as my upbringing, nothing against his upbringing. But, um, and so I get to know him and he's got a friend, Gordon Krieger. So Gordon and Chris and I and Steve, we become, well, actually, no, we, first we're playing with Colleen from the Jellyfish Babies. The Jellyfish Babies left, leave town. Mike Belitsky, uh, who's now in the Sadies, he joins the Jellyfish Babies. Colleen doesn't move away. So mm. Colleen plays with us and our band is called Aware. Which right. is, still makes me, give me makes me embarrassed to talk about just how serious we were. <laughs> we call aware, man, because it's heavy. Was there an and, exclamation uh, mark after aware? I don't think so. I think I think it was kind of implied, maybe. Okay, sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> it was all uh, caps. Yeah. So in 1986, I drove to uh, I drove to Montreal to see the Descendants, who were one of my favorites, and the opening band was Dagnasty, and Dagnasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, their record was just coming out, and uh, and it was the guitar player from who had been in Minor Threat, Brian Baker. So anyway, Dag Nasty became kind of an obsession of mine, and and so Aware was basically formed in that kind of whole DC over Minor Threat, right. Dag Nasty, and these kind of later DC bands. There's like Rites of Spring. It's basically emo music. It's like okay. Rites of Spring, Beef Eater. Mm-hmm. Um, Gray Matter, Soul Side, King Face, like that. Now that's that's now I'm an expert in all these kind of like bands. Not a lot of people know about. And uh, so Aware plays. We open for No Means No. I should say when I drove to okay. see to see Descendants and saw Dagnasi, I also saw No Means No on that trip, and that just it just blew my mind. Like I never knew anything like that before. They just right. like blew my head off. And and there was nobody there. Like I was like, and they weren't even on a stage. I don't think I was like standing right in front of them. I was just like, what? Anyway, so I just whatever. My mind was fried. So I'm playing with those guys. We change our name to Spent. We play a couple more gigs. I'm also at this time. So at the end at the end of high school, I take a job as a messenger porter mm-hmm. uh, at the VG Hospital. My mom basically gets me the job, and it's all the sons and, and daughters of, of, the, of doctors, basically. My mother's a nurse, but it's like all these kids. are Everybody working on the weekend is a rich, shithead kid. Everybody on the work days is just like a, you know, just has a crappy job. But, but yeah. we, I was making seven ten an hour in 1986. It was okay. just like minimum wage was like $3, basically. Like I was rich. But um, so I meet Matt Murphy. Right then, I meet Matt Murphy this, in like May '86, hmm. and you know he's like I I helped him paint paint his basement last night. Like he's still like one of my good friends. Right, and 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 like I, you know I, I play in a band with him now. Still like all these years later, like we we just like had a huge musical bond, and we just met so randomly. I'm very fortunate to have met him. Hmm. But Matt was buddies with a guy named Henry Sangalang. We played some covers together. Like I kind of sometimes hung out with those guys and played covers. I think the name of the band, I guess, at times was the El Caminos. I don't think right. I ever played live with them, but like I sometimes played and they played Stones music and stuff like that. So I met Henry, and then I met when I met Jay at the beginning of second year university. I think he knew Henry, so Jay and Henry and I 
became a three-piece band. Matt went to McGill, so he was gone, so he wasn't going to be in a band with me. Mm. And um, Jay and Henry and I formed a group called Carney Lake Road. So we were kind of, oh, Jay's just, Jay's just uh, texting me right now. I'm just going to have to <laughs> turn notifications off. Sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are we... Are we uh... Skipping over the spent era, we've got. Oh well, spent is, is the same. Yeah, so aware plays one gig. So that's that's Chris Murphy, Chris Murphy, Steve McCullough, Colleen Britton. Right. Colleen, we Colleen leaves the band, or we kick her out, or whatever. So, <laughs> oh no, I, I don't. I forget if Steve Steve might not have been in in aware. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I become the drummer. It's right. Chris is singing. Gordon is bass, Steve is guitar, I'm drums. So that's spent. We play okay. a couple shows as spent. So we didn't play often. Like we recorded a terrible sounding recording and we played a couple times. Like I rented a space in 1988. I rented a, or we rented, but of course I paid for uh, a, a, like a, a place downtown to have gigs. And we had a couple gigs there and like the convulsions played there, Patrick's mm. band, punk, punk band, sure. spent played there and Carney Lake Road. Carney Lake Road and, and Spent were going concurrently. Ah, okay. And I thought of Carney Lake Road as kind of pop. Like, I was just like, they were kind of like into REM and stuff like that. Mm. And I was applying this heavy-handed, no-means-no drumming to this REM shit. Like I said, ruining the band. <laughs> <laughs> like, that whole first tape that we made is just disgusting. Like, I'll play it for you one time, but you can't have a copy. So, so my you're... you're, you're, you're... <laughs> infamous famous pilgrimage to dc to meet oh yeah in mckay was this was this with the spend formation yeah so i i went down the first time in 87 with my buddy scott kennedy who was in not scott kendall who was in the jellyfish babies but scott kennedy who was my other good friend although both of them went to halifax west high school hmm. but scott kennedy and chris murphy and i went to um DC in a van. I bought the van for Scott, who basically had to leave his house. Scott had like a terrible, like his mother died and he's like basically quit school and basically got kicked out of his house, like had kind of a crappy year. And I basically, I had saved money my whole life and never, I'm never playing video games or anything. I saved my money so that I can buy a van that eventually just gets thrown in the garbage. Anyway, I, it was basically for him to live in. But so we went to wow. DC in this van and so, yeah, so DC, Discord Records, Minor Threat. So like we went to Yesterday and Today Records, which is named on some of these records and, you know, um, I know Guy, Guy from Fugazi or from Rites of Spring was, was working there. I don't, mm -hmm. so I went two years in a row and I, and I mix up which year is which. So I know Guy was working at Yesterday and Today Records one of those years and, uh, and they said, don't, if you're, we, I think we were telling them or bragging to them that we were going to Discord House or asking them how to get there. And they just said to make sure the address that's on the Discord records is not Discord House. Here's the Discord uh, address. It's in Arlington, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Arlington, uh, Virginia and Maryland and D.C., like, these are all like different, sound like different places, but they're all basically just interconnected. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so we went to Discord House. Ian is home, knock, 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 and, you know, he has us in, do you guys need to stay here? Like, he's just, like, over the top. Wow. Yeah, and we're, it's all I can do. Like, I wanted to ask for an autograph, get a picture. I didn't do any of those things. I wish I had, 
taken a picture. He, I'm sure he would have been magnanimous about it. But anyway, he just does this whole, uh, you know, workshop on how to behave with, uh, you know, nervous kids, basically, like, put you at ease. Uh, it's just like everything that I ever wanted to be and wanted to sort of impersonate my whole adult life. Anyway, he's like super cool. And so we stayed in DC for two weeks or three weeks, like sleeping in a van, um, you know, in parking lots in 40 degree heat, Hmm. but just to, and we, we saw like a Sonic youth and Das Damen and Rollins band and, uh, whatever. We saw tons of cool stuff, but, uh, yeah. So going to DC, so I went there the first year with, with Scott Kennedy and Chris Murphy. And I went the, the next year with Chris Murphy Gordon Krieger, uh, Steve McCullough, and I. So that was right. spent. We went mm-hmm. as a band. We brought guitars just in case a tour <laughs> bro- bro- broke out. Nice. Um, and actually, when we were driving down, we saw a Canadian license plate, basically a, a shag and wagon similar to ours. And mm-hmm. it was a bunch of guys, like Chris Murphy, I should say, like the other Chris Murphy, um, had big dreads. Like everybody had, all these punks had dreads then. And, and and we see another basically a van full of like the same people as us and we we kind of get into this sort of like talking to them through the wind and they're a band they're an actual band going down to play shows and they kind of encourage us to follow them and i think we're we're going to try to follow them in case we maybe we end up on the bill like how do how does the world work you know those quite so the band was called no mind and so that's paul newman who later is the Doughboys and Mm. later, you know, working with Sloan. So like he's there, I think in the end, in the end, we kind of lose them, but I think they kind of ditched us. (laughs) I think, I think we thought something was happening and I think they may have suspected we thought something was happening. So next thing we couldn't find them. (laughs) That's great. So I went to, so in, so Carney Lake Road is my three piece with Jay and Henry. Henry's a fantastic bass player. Mm -hmm. Jay's a pretty cool guitar player, and at the time, like, kind of more balls out and screaming than he is. Like, mm. like I think this is why he's kind of protective of not having this music right. see, see the light of day. Oh. He's like, 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 he's totally right. going for it. I won't, I guess I won't can, edit in a uh, an illustrative sample at this point. Then you can, like, I, I know that it has existed. It was on like Napster and stuff like that, right? Yeah, Some, okay. they've the 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 sound files have been in my possession for about twenty years. <laughs> I remember them being talked about in the sort of Sloan chat world, but sure. I think I think even that. So I think what that tape is is what I would call our second tape from right. 1988, and I actually think that that's like it's like the left channel of the recording. Like I think that it's a disappointing like mono. Like it's not even mono. Okay. It's just right. like one channel. So right. not that it sounds way better, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love all that stuff. I think it was so cool. Now, albeit, it was... Uh, go ahead, Rob. I was just going to quickly interject here. I'm really curious. I mean, I'm not sure if the... I'm, I'm sure the listener is too, but I mean, you mentioned a minute ago meeting Jay at university, was it? I think I just met him on the street. Um, that was kind of what I was curious skateboarding. about. Yeah. Yeah, he was just skateboarding <laughs> and wearing glasses that I don't think he needed. Like, I think he just like glasses without the lens in them, just like for fashion. I did that. And, They're called vanity glasses, Yeah. <laughs> And I met him sort of, uh, 
I don't. I, I can't remember if I if when we met we said I know you because you know Matt Murphy or you know Henry Sanglang. Hmm. But we by the time we did meet, I have this picture of meeting him on the street. But by, certainly by the time that we did meet and knew who each other were, we had um, had known people in common. Hmm. He was in a band called the Deluxe Boys, hmm. and right. maybe sorry. So Matt Murphy had been in the in the Deluxe Boys for an early incarnation, right? And. Uh, uh, the deluxe boys i think may have maybe i played in the el caminos like at a party and the deluxe boys did too like maybe there's a crossover there but i i can't be sure i don't really remember that jay has told that story but maybe when you have him on i'm kind of upset that i'm the third uh of the of the principles to be on uh, it mean it makes jay the sh- the finale de facto but maybe maybe this will air after jay's interview <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Well, full disclosure on that one, we're doing we're doing the band in the reverse order of how hard the, they're actually to, the members are to get an interview with. So we right. started we, we we shot high. Yeah, I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to do it until you had at least Andrew and, and Patrick. <laughs> and now now you can call me every week. <laughs> Lovely. And um, I just wanted to interject as well too. I yeah. mean, just like for first impressions of Jay, were you guys just like instant buddies, or was it just like, oh, he's just one of the other people in my life? Like he's just a ca- character at this point. No, I think I think um, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. Like I think I was probably hung out more with Henry and right. Matt Murphy, but like I was buddies with Jay for sure. But he was like he's like working full time all the time. He's all either right. working at record stores and stuff, mm. and he always seemed to be. In those early years, he always had a girlfriend, and that's always where he was. Like right. I was always out. Like I went like out to see bands all the time, and I guess Jay probably did too sometimes. But he was not like I did. Mm. Like I would go out dancing. Like at the, at the so the Flamingo, they had a real the Club Flamingo started out as an all ages gig, and then, like the first gigs were like False Security and System Over, like punk bands and stuff. And then, so, and then when they finally got their liquor license, like they're, it's, it was a lot of blues. Like they're always getting like Eddie, the chief Clearwater, or like all these guys, like these like real blues guys. Hmm. Right. And, and so I, I hated all that stuff. I didn't, I was not interested in doing that, but then, you know, they would, they would, it would turn into a dance club after. So like I would basically go out at 1230 I was like, when are these? When's this blues music done? Because I want to dance or whatever. Like, and that's actually actually how I ended up meeting Andrew because Andrew's a DJ at these places. Right. So like, right. Andrew's, uh, you know, the DJ. So at the time, you know, I'd be like, play Public Enemy. Uh, you know, Public Enemy was a big band for all of the Sloan guys. Actually, mm. like we all we always joke that that's the one band we can all agree on. And and perhaps I've said too many times that like the first place that we all feel like we were in the same place was at the Dartmouth Sportsplex uh, when Public Enemy came to town in hmm. 89 or whatever that was. But I already knew Jay by that point, but I don't like, I met Andrew, I think when I was about 20, I know that Andrew was at my 21st birthday party hmm. and I knew Patrick, you know, when I, in 1988, so I'm 20, I had that little space where we were having bands come and play and I know that convulsions played there, but I don't think I talked to Patrick. I, I feel like in, in my crappy sporadic diaries from the time, like the first time I s- talked to Patrick was probably the spring of 1990. Or mm-hmm. I, I think I said something like I talked to Patrick from Happy Co or something like that. Right. Talked to Patrick and Cliff or whatever. Nice. 
anyway, I'm not there yet. I have some more boring stuff to go through. Because <laughs> so yeah, so I'm big man in 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 Carney Lake Road, and so I want to say in 1989 we got um, we got a mention in like uh, what's it called some magazine like Canadian not Canadian musician but something like that. Mm-hmm. It was uh, oh maybe I, maybe I don't have that. Sorry, well, we played at Lawn. We played at this thing called Lawn Jam at Tons at the Technical University of Nova Scotia, right. which is another story. So I have this. I'm also in a group called Tons. But uh, the Lawn Jam program says KLR. This is Carney Lake Road. Describe their music as the Minutemen meet James Brown on their way to see Led Zeppelin. <laughs> to me, that's all J. <laughs> they are possibly the most energetic band on the Halifax indie scene, and their recently released self-titled cassette ep has charted well on ckd ufm all right so i could have died and went to heaven at that point that's about as Mm. that was the extent of my aspirations um so you know i was in i think spent spent was not long for this world like we practice all the time like like a lot of bands like we practice like 55 times and played three shows kind of thing Mm. but uh so carney lake road kind of became my main group you know, we played together from about 1980, the end of 87 till like the beginning of 1990. Mm. And I remember, um, I remember I, like I was fighting with Jay, like I remember fighting with Jay at the time. It's just like, this guy's being a big baby. But I think the other thing that was happening, I was also playing music with, again, with Colleen Britton and another guy named John Goodrich. And so I was playing in a little three piece with them where I was mm-hmm. playing bass. So I was right. playing drums in Carney Lake Road, and then I just like I want to play bass. I was playing bass in in my band Whiteout, by the way. I played drums right. in Spent, or I played guitar in Aware, drums in Spent. So now I'm, I'm bass in this other group, and we just play at open mics and stuff. And we had mm. some originals. John Goodrich is actually a cool songwriter, a cool singer, and so we started out with Colleen. It's John and Colleen and I, and we just playing open mics and like opening for Bob's your uncle or whoever comes to town. Mm. And, uh, and then again, Colleen leaves. I don't know. She's constantly getting kicked out of my band or quitting my band. And so we get Andrew, I meet Andrew as, as a DJ downtown. So John and Andrew and I are playing. And so I've kind of retroactively kind of forgiven Jay. Like, I think I was always like, yeah, I should like maybe, uh, my band with John and, John and Andrew should play out this Carney Lake Road show. Like I'm sure Jay was just dying. Like, what are you what are you doing? Like like I was thinking he was being a big baby. I was just like, hey, can my other girlfriend come too? <laughs> and uh so he was probably frustrated by my behavior and I just just sort of oblivious. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, Andrew was brand new to playing drums, but really played, you know, as you know, he's he's the best drummer in the world and he was just starting. And he, yeah, he was already like this great guitar player. I didn't even know, but yeah. um, he was wanting to play drums, and uh, you know he was being into being technical and lots of like double bass footwork and all this stuff. Like, mm. kind of hilarious compared to the drummer that he ends up or sure. drumming that he loves now. So who made and, that uh, first contact? If you don't mind my asking, like you you've met Andrew. He's DJing. Is the conversation just like, hey, I'm I'm playing with these guys. Do you want to come? And he's just like, oh, I'll play drums, despite the fact that he's this like virtuoso guitar player. Yeah, I guess I, I don't know. So I'm meeting him at at the Flamingo, you know, requesting records, um, 
so I guess, you know, I guess, you know, in the low level of celebrity, like he would have known Carney Lake Road. Right. He would have seen us play. So he knew that I was in the music scene. He was kind of not like he was in the cool looking cool. So like there, there had been a, a, a bar called Cabbage Town hmm. that was a dance club that kind of went under just around the time I turned 19. So I was there like maybe once, but Andrew was the DJ there. Andrew's got a year on me. So like he was probably DJing, you know, the whole time I was just still going to all ages shows and stuff like that. Yeah, he, he, actually Andrew, mentioned, uh, he mentioned us in the interview that uh, he, that you guys had actually got him into the Minutemen that he kind of, that was his sort of entrance to that kind of music. Yeah. So yeah, the Minutemen are three piece kind of, funky punky so like when you think about what the chili peppers are and have become like the chili peppers i would say probably not that respected or whatever like i you know like there's the famous nick cave quote it's like every you know every time i find myself saying what the hell is that bullshit on the radio <laughs> the answer the answer is always the red hot chili peppers um i'm sure the chili peppers um are like super cool guys and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think I, I have to admit that, you know, I probably was like, thought they were cool and all that kind of stuff. I didn't own their records, but the Minutemen are the, the, the kind of like, I think, I think the Chili Peppers also were very influenced by the Minutemen. They were on SST, the sort of mm. Greg Ginn's the label that begat Black Flag and, and, uh, you know, Husker Du and like, uh, all, all that, like a million great bands um, but, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, we got Andrew into some of this, some of this stuff, you know, the Minutemen have a song called, uh, political song for Michael Jackson to sing, right? Yeah. which is basically, basically underwhelmed. Like whenever, whenever I got together with Andrew, okay. I was like, Oh, I got to, I, I have songs and I had underwhelmed literally as a poem. And I was just like, essentially played a version of political song for Michael Jackson to sing by the Minutemen and just like um, stream of consciousness, just like without kind of like a melodic idea, just so like blabbered the, the, this poem over top of it, which is basically, I guess, as good as I can do. And even after like 30 years of trying, I've never topped it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Minutemen, so yeah, Connie Lake Road was like, I was essentially rapping too. Like I have mm. like, Rapping, baseball hat on backwards, long hair, shorts, like, it's like, who is that guy? Anyway, this is, uh, again, another reason Jay is like, bury this stuff. Because <laughs> Jay, Jay was also in the band. <laughs> um, all right, what else do I want to say? Carney Lake Road actually went on tour a couple times. We drove all the way to Toronto. We mm -hmm. played at the Riverly. Mm -hmm. We were interviewed by Erica M. You know, it just seemed like big time stuff. Mm -hmm. The other character that 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 I met around that time was this guy Peter Rowan. He was nice. from Fredericton, New Brunswick, and sure. he had a record label called DTK, Dressed to Kill. He put out a couple of records. None of them I thought were very good, but the Vogons and like all these groups that I didn't really know anything about. But when he came to town, it was almost like we were playing for Seymour Steiners and Peter Rowan's in the audience. <laughs> but he was a great guy and and um you know, he, he loved Carney Lake Road. And when we finally broke up Carney Lake Road, like Peter was pissed, basically. He was just like, mm. that was, you got, like, we, we kind of, we went to 
Fredericton and recorded with a guy named Lloyd Hansen. This is like in the summer of 89. This was going to be our record. We're going to go put it out through DTK. But I just remember feeling, you know, are we quitting our jobs? Like, are we, like Peter Owen's got no money or contacts or right. like, like I have to stay in school. I can't, I can't just, you know, my parents, etc. cetera. Uh, anyway, uh, what's my other, uh, let's see in 1990, the other, the other thing that kind of blows my mind on Jay, Jay Ferguson had a radio show, show on CKDU. Mm. And so I was working at the hospital and I would listen to it there sometimes if I was working on Saturday evenings and the music, the song that he played was you made me realize by my bloody Valentine. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, that just blew me away. I just thought like, this is, this is my music. It's basically super heavy and everything, but it was like a little bit sexier basically than music that I had. Like I had, I'm into hardcore punk and all this kind of stuff like aggression mm-hmm. Right. I like I like the Beatles. I like melody. I, I I wouldn't say that anything that I anyways a little bit sexier than anything that I had that I was kind of in love with. Um, what's my other point? The other people that I met around this time, Matthew Grimson, mm-hmm. who you know released his posthumous record, who died in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I met him at Dalhousie. He was just like. Like so musically sophisticated and sensitive and smart and just uh you know just kind of taught me tons of stuff. Uh, Al Tuck is another guy mm. that we later, sure, a couple years later put out his record on on Murder Records when we had that going. But like I met him around that time and he's just like a singer songwriter guy and just like still doing it and mm. you know yeah. not getting any recognition. You know get some you know, cr- critical recognition, but, you know, basically can't get paid, but like, he's a super talented guy. Hmm. Um, so Carney Lake road. So I'm, I'm on the scene. Jellyfish babies are gone. Carney Lake road is basically the top, if not the, one of the top couple like indie bands in town. I mean, nobody's getting paid. We played, we saved our money for three years straight, split the money. And I think, I think we each took $500 or something like that. Like right. There was nothing, to, but you know, we were young and who cares. And I had a job that paid seven, 10 an hour. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we currently like road breaks up. I'm still playing with John and Andrew Scott, but not for long, just kind of John Goodrich and Andrew Scott. Hmm. And, and that, the name of that is like the head of, but like we were called like cuddly and we were like the mm-hmm. slacks. Then we were the despots. Then we were like, we just changed our name every show. Like we were trying to be uh, the last, the last incarnation we had was furious George. Furious George, another name that dropped in the Ender episode. And uh, I should also say, um, uh, you and McDonald later clank, uh, got in touch with me, uh, at one point when he, when he heard that, uh, when he was trying to call his band Furious George, he called me to make sure that it was okay by me. <laughs> I told him to go ahead. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. I just want to tell you, I'm, I'm getting to the end of my spiel, and then we'll make it more fun. Oh, then, as Carney Lake Road kind of dissolves, then I'm kind of a man about town. Then, like, people are calling me to be in their band. Like, um, um, there's another band called 100 Flowers that had put out right. two records on DTK, they were calling me. They didn't have a drummer, so I was playing with them sometimes. But I didn't think they were very good, actually. Like they were just like, I got this idea for a song, and the idea, maybe this is too musical or inside baseball, was like, 
it was the chord E minor and the chord C and, you know, play back and forth for 20 minutes. So I was like, that's not an idea, guy. <laughs> um, and, but, but there was a, another band that was happening. They were sort of in our circles, but they seemed, they were six years, five, six years. My senior was Blackpool. Mm-hmm. And so they had a record out called Cemeteries. Um, right. And they were kind of like a roots rock band. Their reference points would have been Credence, the band, um, basically, uh, I, you know, the Venn diagram didn't mm. reach me. Uh, I kind of like Credence. I don't dislike the band, but you know, when I'm in fighting mode, I always say, what <laughs> I might have to, this, these depression era fetishes talking about trains. Like I don't, get, I, don't I don't get it, but, uh, but I mean to acknowledge how great they are, of course, or else I think I'm going to get excommunicated from Canada. They're big with the the steampunk gang. They're big with them. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so they kind of, they come at me, even though they're kind of like John Chisholm, the main kind of guy in that is, uh, he's an accountant. Phil Sador is like a heavyweight musician. He's not like, I don't know what he was doing at the time. He just had like a Joe job, but the other guy, was Chip Sutherland, sure. who went on to, who meeting him, he became a super important figure for me and a mentor and a, a good friend who set up Sloan. He's, he was a lawyer. He was mm-hmm. in law school at the time, or maybe just finished, but he put himself through law school playing music. And, uh, and he, he and Peter Rowan, the aforementioned Peter Rowan, they together as the sort of mother Peter Rowan and father Chip characters, respectively, <laughs> kind of made uh set up sloan to uh, to last forever like they got us and set us up to not get ripped off when we get did a deal with geffen and mm. and made us uh didn't make us but just like you should split everything equally like all the things that we kind of are so happy that we've done mm. to this day or we pretend that we're happy we've done to this day i i kid but anyway so i meet chip and John Chisholm was, a, you know, he's, he was, I was good friends with John Chisholm those years. But they, they were kind of a professional band. Hmm. They played at, you know, they made, you know, they wouldn't play for less than $400. Like, we were routinely playing for, like, $30 or whatever. Hmm. But, um, and they were, you know, they were 26 and I was 21. And they seemed like men. And I was, and I was an immature 21-year-old. But anyway, um, I played with them kind of reluctantly. They had an opportunity. They, there was a thing called the East Coast Music Awards, and the East Coast Music Awards hired Terry Brown, who had produced all of the Rush records up until and including Signals. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is the Rush that I loved. But he was, late, he was now doing things like Blue Rodeo. Um, and he's done a whole bunch of things other than Rush. Like I did meet Terry Brown and he just, all he wanted to talk about was anything but Rush. He's like, I, I, you know, I was there when the who did pictures of Lily or like, I forget what it was, but like, he's like, I was the engineer on that. I was there for the Trogs. I was, I was in the sixties. I was like the assistant engineer. I don't mean to say that he doesn't love Rush, but like he was just, you know, that's all he's known for. Anyway, I wanted to, the East Coast Music Awards hired him. He was going to be the producer who people were going to pay a hundred bucks to come and watch him work. So he was going to need a band to come in and be the sort of guinea pig band. 
So that was Blackpool. Mm-hmm. I kind of joined, or I said I agreed to that because I wanted to meet Terry Brown. <laughs> so I go, we record a song. I'm playing bass. I'm pretty terrible. I think even at that time, I didn't understand. They were just like lock in with the with the drums. I was just like. What do you mean? Like the only bass I had ever played was just like dum dum diddle dum 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 dum. You know, it's like lock in. What do you mean? So you know, just playing to the bass drum sort of thing. So I'm just. So not only is there like a heavyweight producer there, it's also every nerd wannabe producer in town is there, mm-hmm. and I'm just sucking all over the place, and so that so they would say. We would do a take live, live off the floor, and the, the control room is just like full of nerds and Terry Brown, and so it's just like that. You know, that was great, guys. We're gonna redo the bass. Come on in, Chris. And so I would have to go into the into the control room, surrounded by these nerds, and play. And and my pay, my part, of course, was just like boom, 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 like. And everybody's like, I think he's sharp, Terry. I think he's flat, Terry. I think, I think he's sharp, Terry. <laughs> Jesus. And I was just dying. Cause and your Phil bass Sador, is like the highest thing in the mix, I'm sure. <laughs> well, and Phil Sador is like heavy player. Like, I'm sure he's just like, get out of my fucking way. <laughs> but, and then in the end, Terry Brown, I'm letting strings ring. And so in the end, Terry Brown has to, like, he's in, like, muting everything I'm not playing. Like, he's just right, right in beside me, muting any string I'm not playing. Just like, okay. 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 Like, it was just pathetic. So, and, and, and I kind of credit that mortification with the starting of my style of bass playing, which is to mute everything all the time. Like I, <laughs> I play heavy muted. Like I kind of keep my hand over the top of, and don't let strings ring. Right. And I sort of attribute it to that, but whatever. Wow. It's basically to sound like Paul McCartney, but. Well, I just, I want to mention at this point, um, I'm hope I'm hoping that you're getting your royalty checks from Jim Cuddy because <laughs> days and days premeditates hasn't hit me yet by about five years, right? Oh, does it? Are they similar? I, I would I would put that in that in that category right there. So to ha- have a listen and let me know if if they owe you some money. Uh, I I don't think I have any songwriting on that. Although Blackpool. <laughs> like as sort of square as they were, like they weren't punks, but they, I think that they were, they also wanted to make an effort to, I think they, I think even though Chisholm and Phil kind of wrote everything, I think they were talking about splitting everything too, probably because Chip was one of the four and it was his idea. It's like, I think we should split off. I don't write anything here. So I think we should, split. but, uh, um, they were encouraging me to write too. So they ended up getting, they, we ended up recording a record with Terry Brown, so that that mortifying session went well in spite of my bass playing, and uh, and then Terry Brown recorded a record. The record's called We the Living, and uh, you know it wasn't their first record, so it was their first record with me, and and that was on a MCA subsidiary called Justin Entertainment or something, and I think the guy who was kind of the the head honcho there was a bit of a goofball, but um, anyway, I, I had a re- I was had a record deal. I was twenty one, like um, you know, I was in this band. I had a record deal, so like we went to Toronto and we played. We played a couple shows in Ontario. We played with the Sky Diggers, hmm. uh, who were another kind of like roots yeah. rock band from Canada, and uh, and they were super nice to us, of course. And so we played at the Horseshoe, and it just seemed like that was happening. 
But so that's all that's all 1990. But then I'm also buddies with Andrew and Jay and Jay. You know, I broke up with Carney Lake Road in the beginning of 1990. So I, I black pool. I go to fill this vacuum and it just takes up more and more of my time. They get a record deal and all this stuff. But I just still want to play with my friends. So Jay's back in my life, kind of coming around. I see him. We're talking about making a new band by the spring of 1990. Andrew was away, I think, for part of that summer, and I was hanging out with him. I went to Toronto and visited him, and he's mm-hmm. living with Mike Bolitsky, I think, who's in the Jellyfish Babies, mm-hmm. so like, he's still connected to those guys. And uh, so by, I think, I kind of feel like Andrew was away. Andrew was also in a band at the time called No Damn Fears. That's right. Did he mention that in his episode? Yes. So that's with Jennifer Pierce, my prom date, and I was living with Jennifer at the time, I think. And Dave Marsh, who now plays with, or has been playing with Joel Plaskett for years and years. Uh, so Dave, Dave Marsh and Jennifer and Andrew Scott, for a time, they had an original drummer before Andrew, but Andrew was in for a time. So they're playing shows around town. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm still in the scene and all that kind of stuff. So, so th- whatever. I, I kind of forget the order of events, but by... I think Andrew was away that fall of 1990, but the, we were talking. It's like, well, when Andrew gets back, we're going to start a band, uh, Jay, Andrew, and me. And uh, and that's what we did. I think we may have played together in, at the end of 1990, or I was playing with Andrew anyway, but um, I, I don't know if we, we say that we started in the beginning of 91. Do we say that? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and we did one rehearsal with another guy named Lucas Pierce, who was... Right. Uh, the three of us and Lucas Pierce played a rehearsal. Whatever, Lucas ended up in a bunch of bands. He was like, I've known Lucas since he was a, a you know, 13 year old kid going mm-hmm. to see the Jellyfish Babies and stuff like that. He's a couple years younger than me. But he was a total like blue mohawk punk guy. So anyway, that didn't go anywhere. But then <laughs> Patrick, I knew from the Convulsions and from Happy Co. And we kind of, and, and from Blue Street Paper Chase, where he was just like working at the magazine store. So I'd mm-hmm. see him all the time. So he came, I knew that he could play and sing. So he came in as a bass player. And I guess, you know, we played a show by, by February, so we hadn't played much. We didn't play very often. I had played with Andrew probably kind of all the time. Like Andrew and I were playing together, where I was the bass player in, the, in that band with John Goodrich. Like he was the drummer and I was the bass player. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start slow and I wanted to be the guitar player. I wanted to be the writer. But uh, anyway, you, you know, you guys know how that goes. <laughs> But uh, so, so by the time I, we start Sloan at the beginning of 91, like I'm still in Blackpool. Like Blackpool is my main thing. Like they still have a record deal. They're getting, sh- they're playing shows. Like it's not really cross Canada tour stuff. Like those guys all have jobs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I kind of felt like I was in like a normal, like working band, but I also had my kind of side band. You know, Sloan didn't, Sloan only played you know, a handful of shows that first year, like mm-hmm. right. less than 10 or whatever. But, um, but kind of luckily Blackpool broke up and it, I didn't have to quit or I didn't know what I was going to do. Like I was probably in some kind of contract. I don't even know. Like mm-hmm. I think that even when, cause I recorded a song of mine called radio Toronto and a song of mine, which was, I am the cancer, which in, in the Blackpool version was called kiss me, kiss me. Mm-hmm. I recorded those two songs with Blackpool, and they're just like strummy strum. Wow. Uh, um, versions. Do these exist and as a document somewhere? 
Oh yeah, I have all that stuff. Wow. Yes, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait for the smear box. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know what Jeez. what that would be. Maybe. Yeah, I should talk to Chisholm. Maybe he would let me use those two songs, the Blackpool versions. Maybe I could put like a Blackpool seven inch in there or something. I don't, I don't know. Jay Jay probably wouldn't want that anyway. It's like, Meh. but anyway. Uh, so. Um, yeah, so Sloan was kind of like my side project for the first year. Blackpool kind of comes to a um, kind of natural end. Mm. And I think it was Phil who really didn't want to be at it anymore. But, uh, and then, and then literally, so now we're, this is like, now we're at, we're technically 30 years ago. Then we, rec- we, Sloan enters like a songwriting contest to get studio time. And that ends up as a cassette and later a CD called Here and Now, H-E-A-R. And, uh, and the guy who kind of put it together, it was CKDU and a guy named Terry Pulliam. And Terry Pulliam had a little recording set up in his house. And we recorded our kind of cramps version of Underwhelmed, I think September 14th, 1990. Mm-hmm. And then... A week later, Nevermind came out, and the world was changed, and we were kind of ready to go. So, that's uh, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> that's your story. That's my story. I think. I guess the other thing. Oh, I guess I didn't say uh, when I was at. I was in Dalhousie for four years, so like eighty-six mm. to ninety, and then I went to NASCAD, you know, because, to sort of hang out with Andrew. Um, and, you know, I could draw somewhat, but, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have the marks to go on. And I was just playing music for fun and going to school. Why not? And uh, and, I, and and I also basically have said that I also went there to date other girls. I met, met Laura Borealis and Allison uh, McLeod there. Right. I, I, met, I actually met Catherine Stockhausen my first year of NASCAR. She was in my class because she was... She's younger than I am, so I had done four years in university, but she was just out of high school. Mm. So we were both in first year together. But we weren't we weren't dating until like five years later. Right. Um, and the Carney Lake Road record that was going to come out on DTK, um, like a, a version of it ended up at CKDU, and it charted at number four in 1990. So that was okay. kind of the end of that. That was the end of that uh, era. So then, yeah, so I'm in Sloan as a hobby, trying to figure out how to get out of Blackpool. And uh, yeah, because, sorry, the other thing was, when, when I got, when we got a, a record deal with Sloan, I think there was some question to like, do I have some kind of rights tied to me through the deal that I did from Blackpool? Like, did Justin Entertainment, are they going to be able to sort of put some kind of clause into me? Because we were kind of like, such a big, big song was such a big story, right? In uh, in the spring of '92 or whatever. Let me, uh, yeah, I want to kind of scooch back for a second. I'm kind of fascinated by <clears throat> your telling of being a younger guy, you know, saving up money when you're a kid and not buying records and video games and stuff, and and then later having the ability to buy somebody a van and stuff. Like, I'm just kind of curious. Was this like something maybe like a parental influence? Like, you know, save your money. Like, don't blow it on all this kind of stuff. Because I mean, I think the average kid is just like turning around coin as soon as they get it. You know, so I'm just kind of curious about where that sort of mindset kind of came from. I don't know. I think I mean the other thing about me, and I don't know where it starts, is that I never, I never 
I drank alcohol and tried smoking and tried drugs or any of that stuff. And, you know, that was part of what drew me to the sort of the the hardcore punk and minor threat stuff. So that was, Mm. you know, as I was in grade, into grade 10 and, uh, you know, I had friends that were like trying drinking and stuff like that. I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to be doing that kind of stuff. Like, Mm. um, there, there was and, and was show. that strictly sorry? Was that strictly like a minor threat influence, or was did that was that something that no, uh, existed my, previously? Minor threat was kind of. Um, I was already kind of ready to take that stance. Um, you know, I remember. Uh, I, you know, I, I definitely I had uh, my mother had a brother who was a big alcoholic, and everybody knew everybody was afraid of him mm. coming over and hiding the booze and that kind of stuff. So, like, I remember thinking, like, I'm never going to do that. Yeah, like I'm never going to. Um, but my parents both drank uh, socially and were fun. Like it wasn't, I didn't really observe alcohol as a dangerous or upsetting thing, except for, I guess, this thing about my uncle that, Mm. but um, I remember thinking since I was in grade six or whatever, like they would show stupid propaganda movies, you know, (laughs) drugs are bad. Okay. Kind of thing. And, and I remember my grade six teacher, saying, you know, oh, you see, you know, you'll see these things, but you know, by grade nine, you guys will all be drinking. And I remember thinking, it's like, not me, buddy, <laughs> you know, I'll show you or like, I'm still trying to show my grade six teacher. <laughs> but, uh, but when minor threat came out, when I was having these, you know, when parties were happening where people were drinking stuff and I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'll be nervous about it's like, I don't want to be thought of as a nerd. Like, I don't want right. to, it's not like I don't like people or I don't want to be invited and these kinds of things. But when, when hardcore and the sort of whole straight edge movement associated with minor threat kind of re- revealed itself to me, like I was kind of like, oh, that's perfect. Like these guys are, it's not like I'm too scared or I'm too uncool to do It's like, I'm, I'm, po- uh, you know, I'm just a positive, straight, straight and alert and all this kind of stuff. Like mm. it was, there was like a tough, a tough veneer or like a toughness or whatever that came with it. It was like, I'm straight edge. Yeah. Um, I wasn't like too afraid, which was more true. Probably like I didn't, I was afraid of the adult world. I didn't want the um, trappings of, I, I just wanted to stay a kid basically. And mm. I still do. But, and, and I also just like every asshole in the school was drinking. Mm. You know what I mean? Like the, the, like the, the kids who were like spitting on Sharon McDonald cause she had, you know, you know, crazy haircut or whatever. They were all, they were all drinking. I didn't want a part of that. I thought that's jock behavior. Mm. Um, so it was part of what endeared me to that music and that kind of stuff. Even though like, I still think that minor threat musically, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the Beatles, I guess, but like, it's, it's pretty crazy. Like it's pretty rehearsed. That's, Mm. that's for sure. Yeah, totally. um, it's not that melodic, but like, I think they're, um, you know, I think they practiced a lot, like, you know, for guys that were probably actually, they were pretty good players, but you know, they were definitely do it yourself guys. Like, um, I'm into do it yourself stuff. You know, sometimes like when you get older, it's like, you know, with, with everybody should be able to do it, but maybe not everybody should do it. It's like, don't make me watch. Don't make me sit through your shitty band. Um, <laughs> It's funny. I remember we were in just in the last episode, we were talking to Gregory about Cola Wars and stuff. And I was so endeared by the fact that you and Jay obviously went to go support him for his sort of first. And I guess at this point only really solo show. 
Um, but then after he tells the story about you guys just being like, well, hey, we've got this like built-in infrastructure ready to go. Like, you know, just plug yourself into our, you know, vehicle here. You know, we can right. do artwork and we can assist you. And, you know, you're talking about do it yourself. Um, I don't know. My sure. mind kind of goes there. Well, yes, it's do it yourself, but also pay for it yourself. I, we didn't really put any money into to Cold Wars. We, we don't, you know, it's all we can do to basically promote our own band. But, you know, we like, you know, you know, to be fair, like Gregory essentially, I think in the end, we just kind of loaned him the money to do anything. But I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to say I was going to personally pay to do all this stuff. I was like, you pay for it yourself. We'll give you our name as, as a brother and a, we love you and, and we'll, you know, attract who we can to, you know, we have a small reach in mm-hmm. the scheme of things. And there was part of me that was worried if, you know, I want to be, I want to be able to say like, you know, this Matthew Grimson record, if you like Sloan, like you'll kind of like it, but you know, with Cola Wars, it's like, it's kind of a harder sell. It's like, you know, if you like Sloan, so it has nothing to do with color. Like I didn't want anybody to feel, I didn't want consumers to feel like they buy color wars and they're like, what the hell is this? Because it's crazy. It's like out there music. And so a, I wouldn't want to, to make a Sloan fan feel tricked or cheated. And I especially wouldn't want that to come back to Gregory where it's like somebody saying, what is this crap kind of thing? And it's like, he's like, I don't want, I don't want like, you know, I wouldn't want his, what he's done to be judged by someone who was close-minded or something like that through me. There was another example of that when we put out the Pony to Look record through Murder Records, and then it was called like Single of the Week in Canada or whatever, like on Mm -hmm. whatever iTunes or something like that. And everybody, every asshole in the world came out saying, this is terrible, like worse, like these bitches, like these ugly, like just like, just like, Jesus. Anyway, I felt so terrible for for subjecting them to that because you know their whole world was just like this insular. They're just playing in Kensington Market mm. uh, or o- O'Tools or what's the place called that you play with them, Rob? O'Grady's. O'Grady's. Or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just like <laughs> all O'Tools. all just yes, exactly. All friendly face, all friendly faces. Like you can yeah. do it, kind of thing. And then you just subject them to like not only people who don't understand, but just like. Awful, awful people. Anyway, I just felt terrible for making them suffer that criticism to these awful people. Anyway, uh, anyway, so yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I'm all for. I, I don't mean to say that it wasn't generous what we did, but you know, we didn't do much. Like we made a fun sure. video and made a fun poster and used our small skill set to help them see that through. Anyway, it turned out cool. And speaking of records and stuff, I can't remember I had asked you about this one time forever ago uh i think we were talking about records or record collecting or something and i think i don't know if you correct me if i'm wrong i think you mentioned that you don't own i mean it's funny to be somebody who's friends with jay ferguson and to not have like this massive record collection or something am i correct to assume like you don't have some sort of record collection or something like that and is this sort of tie in with the sort of like no alcohol i don't need this like basically i just need like these basic things i don't need any of this extra stuff yeah, I have a kind of austere, yeah, my my record collection. So, like, at the time of the hardcore, my love of hardcore, so that's, like, mid-'80s into about 1990 or whatever, like, I did buy records then. But, mm. you know, my parents, I loved the Beatles, but, you know, we had uh, Abbey Road, 
Beatlemania with the Beatles, kind of like a Canadian version of with the Beatles, hmm. the American Rubber Soul, which I prefer to the UK, and uh, Hey Jude, like a, right. just like a, a weird compilation of singles. Hmm. Uh, that was it. Like I, I had, I knew people. So I had the friend as a kid who had these weird like Beatles '65 and stuff like that, and I had relatives that had the red album and the blue album, so I knew the songs. Hmm. Those are compila- those are like career spanning compilations that came out in '73 or whatever. But like I didn't, know, I didn't know. I had never heard no reply or or I, yeah, I don't think I knew. Like there are lots of songs. I had a giant hole in my knowledge of Beatles. Um, I I w- was reluctant to spend money for sure. Uh, but I had, you know, I bought a bunch of the hardcore records when that was happening at the Minor Threat and the Bad Brains and all that. Like I bought those records when they when they came out. Um, and like the last last vinyl record I bought was Joshua Tree, and I think it's still in the in the package. Like I don't think I even made it to the. I was like, I can't listen to you two anymore. These guys are whack. But uh, so like I kind of stopped. I don't. I didn't buy records after that. And then I bought CDs in the 90s and, you know, I didn't go crazy. Like I bought Stereolab record when I saw Stereolab in 1992. Like I couldn't, I thought they were awesome. It blew me away. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so are we at the three hour mark? <laughs> <laughs> that might be a great place to kind of maybe tie a bow on this conversation. Thank you again so much for joining us. And thank you, listener. I, I really hope that you enjoyed this one. What a special episode. Uh, our one-year anniversary show uh, featuring Chris. Uh, it has been an awesome conversation. Uh, obviously, we'll be bugging him to have him back. Um, how did you enjoy that, Ken? What would you think? Yeah, I like how uh, we were able to keep the format consistent with the first three members of Sloan that we interviewed in terms of let's just talk about your early life and let's talk about some stuff that you know you wouldn't be able to hear in other podcasts or much music interviews from the 90s or whatever so uh what a dude you know it's uh it's very humbling to know that he's out there listening to sloancast as well so it's insane (laughs) yeah chris has really been championing us on social media and we thank him again for that Uh, and again thank you a listener for joining us and uh, we hope you enjoyed this one Uh, i want to just remind everybody quickly to obviously check out the murder records podcast it's murder records hq on instagram each of the individual guys on instagram are pretty easy to find Uh, jay's got his dj sets and spotify playlists available um his uh, music mag mania account as well uh chris is on there at sloan dude Uh, obviously tons of the new duly noted out and they've got some dates coming up uh shortly uh with kiwi jr from sub pop uh patrick uh, obviously has his patreon which if you're not subscribed to you definitely should do that no excuse and his fuzzed out project is available across streaming platforms as well uh, and andrew of course uh is selling his amazing artwork uh via instagram so you can just send him a message make him an offer boom there you go uh, or just head, head over to the sloan music account and tell him how much you love him so for from ken myself and uh, cmm tommy champ we'll see you next time on sloancast keep sloan Bye-bye, guys. Nice.